0: You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. If you'll remain standing for a moment, we're going to pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for this new year. Thank you, God, for the opportunity that we have had and continue to have in this service to worship you. And thank you now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive your word for the opportunity that we will have to learn more. We thank you, God, for your goodness in our lives, and we thank you, Father, for the word that will be preached. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Christ's name. You may be seated. Well, I have the privilege of introducing you to our preacher for today. So she um, got excited about global missions while she was at UVA, um, as she interacted with people from InterVarsity. And then what happened was Stephanie Black, who is our missions partner, um, she became passionate about the, the idea of equipping and training those who are in global context, helping them to understand, to read, and interpret the Bible. And so that led her to complete her Ph.D. in New Testament. Since then, she has taught at graduate um, schools in theology um, at, in Ethiopia, Kenya, and India, And she um, currently brings her international experience to the missions organization she serves with, Surge, where she serves as a theological education specialist. She's based in Europe and travels to teach primarily in Africa and Asia. She's been living in Dublin um, and now is going to be moving to Prague, but she considers Richmond her home here. Stephanie is also the Associate Director for Orientation and Training uh, with Theologians Without Borders, and she is an affiliate Associate Professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary. She's an ordained minister with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Now, Stephanie and I have gotten to know each other quite well, um, especially during COVID, because she was actually stuck here for several months, and we have done lots of walks around together all over Richmond since that was the only type of thing that we could do outside together. So my friend and Dr. Reverend Stephanie Black.
1: Good morning. I am, as LJ says, I am a mission partner sent by you and third have been incredibly faithful and generous mission partners sending me for over 20 years. So it is such a privilege and a blessing for me to be with you this morning. I just want to say thank you. If nothing else, thank you for your faithfulness to God's global mission. Now, this past week... Oh, LJ did not read the scripture because I'm going to read it in its entirety in a minute. Um, As LJ said, I'm really more of a seminary professor than a preacher, than a pastor. So this is going to be more of a Bible study than a sermon, and it's not going to work unless you're following along in the text. So pull open a pew Bible or a Bible at your house if you're at home, or pull it up on your phone, or whatever. It's the first two chapters of Matthew. If you're not um, used to looking for it or if you're not sure where it is, it's basically just the first two chapters in the New Testament. So have that ready. And while you're looking at that, I will tell you that I've learned a new phrase this week, crimbo limbo. Does anybody know that one? No, I didn't either. So I've lived in the British Isles, i lived in England for about four years and Ireland for about four years and I'm constantly learning new versions of English. And I was texting with an English friend this week and she said, well, I'll be really glad when we're out of crimbo limbo. I'm like, what? So I Googled it, it's a thing. It actually means that time between Christmas and when life gets back to normal. So the week, 10 days, whatever it is. And I know for many of us, Crimbo Limbo has become Crimbo COVID Limbo and extended a little bit uh, this week. I have something. I've been tested three times, all negative. So here I am, but you will hear it. You will hear it in my voice. All right. So we're going to be looking at the middle, chapters 1, verse 18 of Matthew, all the way through um, chapter... 2, verse 23. Basically, it's the end of chapter 23. And since I'm a seminary professor, there will be a quiz after we read this, okay? Um, You know, I said I learned all kinds of new phrases all the time, and there's always new things to learn, but sometimes we have to unlearn things as well. Um, Take our understanding of the Christmas story and the nativity. Um, I have two darling little grandchildren, two and almost four, who attend this church Hi, James. Hi, Jack. I think they're watching at home. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I went to their preschool Christmas pageant, which you can imagine, so much cuteness. You know, little two-year-olds in sheep, fluffy sheep costumes, all terrified. But just as cute as it could be. Um, You know, with the camels and the wise men and the angels and the bells and the stars and everybody else. And, you know, we love it. And it's all of our idea of what nativity play should look like. And I love the fact that my little grandsons know that what we're really about at Christmas is Jesus' birthday. But I suspect we also know that the way that we've come to imagine the birth of Christ from Christmas cards and Sunday school and nativity pageants isn't exactly the way that the uh, events went back in that time. So, you know, I lived in Ethiopia for eight years. People keep wanting to come visit me in Europe and I'm like, yeah, first dibs to the ones who came to visit me in Ethiopia. So I spent a lot of time around donkeys in Ethiopia, donkeys in the road, donkeys around my car. When we built a fire pit in our backyard, the first instructions were you need, first you need two donkey loads of bricks. Um, and so one of the things I learned about that and looking around was like, oh, no nine month pregnant woman is ever gonna ride a donkey. Okay, I mean, and adults generally don't ride donkeys, little boys ride them and hit them with sticks. But, you know, so we, that picture of, of Joseph and Mary with Mary on the donkey, and they're going to Bethlehem, and even the fact that we tend to visualize them sort of alone on the road, just the two of them, like they got in their Prius to go to the hospital or something when the baby started coming. I mean, that's just like, it doesn't work. Remember, this is the Middle East in the first century. Nobody is going to send a young woman pregnant with her first baby off a Days and days travel by foot away from home with a clueless husband, because childbirth is women's work. So we can, you know, and everyone was having to go back to their hometowns anyway. So we can pretty well imagine there were aunties or someone who was an experienced midwife or whatever. Now I know that kind of messes up some a bit of our understanding of what it all looked like. But the thing is, sometimes because of the things we're excited about, about Christmas, we don't actually hear what our inspired New Testament storytellers are telling us. And so today, I want us to take some time and see if we can just really hear what Matthew is saying to us, what he wants us particularly to take away from the Christmas story. Um, It's sort of like, do you ever have a friend, I have to confess, my mother, who was a great mom, however, if I told her something I was really excited about and I told the whole narrative and all the details and everything, at the end of it, she'd say, yes, that's just like da 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 And I'm like, no, 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 it wasn't. It wasn't like that at all. I have a feeling you weren't actually listening. Your own excitement was carrying you in another direction. And we tend to do that with our gospel accounts. So today, we're gonna to try to hear Matthew's story. Good storytellers, as you may have experienced around your family Thanksgiving or Christmas tables recently, it's not only what they say, but it's how they tell the story. So we're gonna listen. Um, I am going to read this whole section, it's a bit long, and what I want you to do is run your finger down and be really watching the text, and I want you to look for two things. First, I want you to ask yourself, who are the key characters that are moving the action along. The way Matthew tells this, who are the key characters that are moving the action along? The second thing is, what else is repeated again numerous times in this passage, okay? Two things, main characters, repetition, and there will be a quiz. So here we go, I'm reading from the ESV, doesn't matter which version you're following along in, starting in Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I may too may come and worship him. Yeah. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt Okay, I'm going to ask you, just take one minute. I know you're not usually allowed to talk in church, but take one minute and compare notes with the people near you, whether you're in the sanctuary, the fellowship hall, or at home. Who are the main characters driving the action, and what what are some of the things that you saw repeated numerous times? Go ahead. Okay, I know you can go longer, but I'm going to stop there. At least you've got some ideas to play with. Normally, we would do a lot of calling out the answers here, but I think because we're streaming as well. Let me just have you raise your hands, the ones I can see here in the uh, sanctuary. How many of you identified Mary as a main character? How many of you identified Joseph as a main character? How many of you identified the wise men as a main character? How many of you identified Herod as a main character? Ooh, well done, if the numbers are anything to go by. The thing is, we think that Mary should be a main character, right? Because this is the Christmas story, so like there should be Mary. It's sort of like you've probably heard this old story about the Sunday school teacher who was talking about asking the children, you know, about to name a little animal that was bushy and had a bushy tail and ran up trees and ate nuts. And the little boy who said, I think it's a squirrel, but I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus. Jesus. So, you know, it's like, it's the nativity, so it must be Mary. But actually, Mary's pretty absent from this story, if you notice that. It's a bit like those uh, Hogwarts picture frames where the people go to do other things in other frames. Mary is over in Luke's gospel, very, very busy, meeting angels, singing, dealing with the swaddling clothes, pondering things in her heart. She's over there. She's really not in this frame. She's mentioned, but she's not active in any way. Um, The Magi, the wise men, certainly are significant, but they only show up once. But what we really have is this alternation between Joseph, and then Herod, and then Joseph, and then Herod, and then Joseph. If you were storyboarding this narrative, as Matthew tells it, there would be five panels. There would be the Joseph panel in the second half of chapter one. Then there would be the Herod panel, that's when the Magi come. Then there's the Joseph panel, that's when they run to Egypt then there's the Herod panel when the babies are killed, and then there's the Joseph panel again when they come back and settle in Nazareth. Now, another reason that we know that Matthew wants us to walk through these five panels is because of things that he repeats in each. What are some of the things that you saw repeated? I see, Margaret's gonna tell me. Good, the dreams, the angels are always speaking to people in the dreams, excellent. So that happens a lot, and there's basically one in each panel. The last panel has two mentions of that. What about, um, what else is repeated? Somebody on this side, sorry, we've got to make them all work. Prophecy fulfilled, yes. And you'll notice that in each of our five panels, there's one fulfillment statement. So we can be pretty confident that Matthew is wanting us to see this as five episodes. So if we're really listening to Matthew, then we need to understand what he's doing with those five panels. The other thing that's significant about this fulfillment statements is that, and the dreams and the angels, is that Matthew is showing us from the very beginning that God was in control of this whole process. We see what's happening at the ground level and we see what's happening at the heavenly level, for want of a better word. That God's promises are being fulfilled And that God is giving help where help is needed. And so in spite of the fact that we've got a tiny little baby here, did you notice in that first Joseph panel where Jesus is born, that like, you know, in Luke, we get this whole story about Jesus is born and who comes to visit and the angels are singing and the shepherds are there. In uh, this one, we get about half a sentence. She gave birth to a boy and they called his name Jesus. So Matthew's obviously not as interested in what happened there as what happens after Christmas. Um, Yeah, any of us who have had anything to do with newborns know that as much as we anticipate the birth, the real work kicks in then. And so this is about what happens to that tiny, vulnerable, Emmanuel God with us baby, and how God is going to keep the whole story going. Now, We don't have time to look at all five of these verses and the way they work in the Old Testament, but I want to choose one as an example, and it's in that passage that's the really hardest one for us to handle, which is that one where Herod kills the babies, okay? This one we do not ask the children to act out in preschool, Um, but it's there. It's in there, and I want to mention that um, when we see Old Testament lines quoted in the New Testament, It's often meant to tell us not just about those lines, but to get us to go back and look at the larger context it came from. So it's sort of like singing a few lines of a song and assuming that your audience knows the rest, because Matthew's audience did know the Old Testament. So if I sang, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle. (laughs) You can see where my voice is going. Thank you. You would know. You just know where it is. So, but unfortunately, we don't always. So if we just, for example, in that one, look back to Jeremiah 31, where the story comes from, it's actually a whole chapter about God's promise of hope while his people are in exile. And the verse about Rachel weeping for her children is meant to talk about the sorrow of those who are in exile from God. But if we start going in the very next verses, it starts talking about God's promise of that he remembers them and that he'll forgive them and that he'll restore them. And it goes all the way down to the end of chapter 31 to a passage that might be familiar to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be my, their God and they shall be my people. This is the song that would be resonating with those who read that prophecy um, when that. Joseph is a carpenter, a construction guy. Normal guy, caught up in extraordinary circumstances. We're told that he's a good guy, that he wants to do the right thing. And so he takes Mary, and all the way through this, these panels, the three Joseph panels, Joseph basically has one job, save the baby. One job, save the baby. And Joseph is tenacious about doing it. Um, look down, skim back through, and we're told about Joseph, that he's righteous. What do we hear from Joseph himself about how he feels about this whole thing? Skim down. Where are Joseph's lines? (laughs) Trick question. Joseph has no lines in this story. Joseph says nothing in the whole story. Joseph is the strong, silent type this construction worker who says, God's calling me to do something, and I'm going to be faithful to it. He is an ordinary hero. Sometimes when we look at church leadership or we look around us, you know, it's easy because you see people up here who are educated and verbal and, you know, can make nice packages of things to tell you about God's word. We think that that's the kind of leadership that God always uses. That's our tradition, but that's not God's tradition. God uses ordinary heroes. And if you ever think your life is too plain, or too insignificant, or too ordinary, or you don't have what it takes, I would like to introduce you to Joseph. When God calls Joseph to do something, Joseph responds, he has one job, and he does it. He saves the baby. Interestingly enough, Joseph disappears from the story after that. We never hear about Joseph again. So Joseph is one of these main characters. I think, however, that Matthew may really be calling our attention to Herod. And there's a couple reasons that I think this. One is, remember all of those dreams and visions? Who's the only character who never gets a dream, an angelic dream or vision from God? Herod. He doesn't get one. Joseph gets one in each panel, actually two in the last panel. The wise men get the one in the first Herod panel. And in that fourth panel where Herod kills the baby, there's no divine guidance there. God is not telling anybody to do anything in that passage. God is not on Herod's side. The balance of power has shifted. And Herod is all about power. Um, I'm quite struck by um, when I read this passage when it says in the beginning of chapter two, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And when Herod the king heard this he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Okay, well, what's that all about? So I looked it up, and I'm going to read you a little bit of background about this. Herod's father, this is Herod the Great, who's in the story. His father was Herod um, Antipater, um, who was a cunning politician, apparently from an Idumaean or Edomite family, two words for the same group of people. What it means is they're descendants of Esau. So if we go back to Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament, Jacob is the one who's renamed Israel and he becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel and what we think of as the Jews all come from there. Edom, Esau has his own family but they live on the other side of the river sort of way over there, sort of like out by Winter Park or somewhere, I don't know. So they are not true Jews in the sense and yet somehow by conniving with Roman power, they have taken over the royal house um, and they are now called the Jewish kings. Now, our Herod, in the face of considerable opposition, established himself in the favor of the Romans and, with their help, fought his way into Jerusalem and into power. His ruthless campaign ended in 37 BC with a three month siege of Jerusalem. That means about 35 years before this, Herod was, Herod was a strong man pushing his way into Jerusalem. He's now 35 years older and he's weak and he's frightened, he's paranoid. They talk about notable characteristics about Herod's um, rule, one is his insecurity. Having fought his way into power, he faced continuing opposition and uncertainty. Members of his own family, including his father-in-law and his wife, Herod's wife, Mariamne, fell foul of his suspicions and were killed. Three of his own sons were executed, Um, He continued to be nervous, and in the latter years of his life, he was obsessed about possible threats to his position. Three of his own sons were executed, including his favorite, Antipater, just days before Herod's own death. Herod's Palestine was a police state living in fear. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. But yet we see that the power has shifted. God is helping those who are on the side of the baby, but he's not helping Herod. The other way that Matthew is showing this is by the way that Herod is described in this passage. Three times at the beginning, Herod is called Herod the king. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 3. And then down in 7, Herod, some of the wise men, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And then the wise men went and found the baby, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And Herod is never referred to as king in this passage again. Six more times we hear about Herod, but he is never called the king. There's lots more coming in Matthew's gospel as he unrolls the whole story of Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection. But right up front here, Matthew is making one point. He's saying, there's a new king in town. A new king has come. There's a new king. And what are you going to do about him? Herod is an anxious, nervous, pretender to the throne. I confess that I am an anxious, nervous, pretender to the throne of my own life. I like to think that I'm the king, that I'm in charge. And yet, Matthew is not giving us a, uh, he's, he's making us choose in this. There's a new king in town. Are you gonna be like the wise men who go through a great deal of trouble to find him, worship him, serve him? Or are you gonna be like Herod, who dismisses and seeks to destroy him? There's no choice. There's a new king in town. These people are moving into a new age of promise, and they're being asked, Matthew's audience is being asked, who's going to be king? We're moving into a new year, 2022, and Matthew's still asking us the question, who's going to be king of your life? Amen.